Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. It's a new year, thank goodness, which means that it's time to reflect on what worked last year, what didn't work, and reset for the year to come. I wanted to look back at 2020 and pick out the lessons I learned, both from my day job and from the podcast, that I want to carry into 2021. Obviously, there were things going on last year that colored everything that I learned and the experience, but today I'm going to focus specifically on some product lessons learned. So the five lessons I'm taking from 2020 are products or workflows, commit to dates, your team is your peer group, when in doubt, it's your job, and never forget to sweat the details. Okay, let's start with the biggest lesson learned, and that's that products are workflows. This lesson goes out to Elias, our CTO and co-founder. I learned it or probably relearned it from him last year. So typically when you're working on a user problem or story, I think we frame it as the user has this specific problem and that problem gets in the way of them achieving whatever outcome it is that we're looking for. And we are hopefully prioritizing solving for that outcome versus solving for some other outcomes. And then once we get into the solution space, we focus on the specific thing that we're going to build. So the team will typically start with whatever set of things are going to change or add into the existing product when they describe what that solution is. That's pretty normal. The challenge is that if every single product team operates that way, then every team is just looking at the section of the product that they're changing to solve that specific problem they've identified. And then you start to lose sight of the overall user experience, which inevitably is going to cross each of those teams and what they're working on. The price of having small autonomous product teams is that you can lose track of that bigger picture and you can get into a situation when you're solving point problems and as a PM, unknowingly creating workflow issues for your user because those workflows happen outside of the domain of the team that you're on. I was running into this challenge last year and we came up with a ritual that has really improved how I think about the product that we're building as a whole because it forces us to account for the full user workflow, even if the thing that we're changing is much smaller than that. So every week we have time set aside to go through work in progress. And the new part is that the format is the same almost no matter what stage of the process you're in, from pitching a problem to solve, to showing progress on research, to showing a proposed concept, to showing the solution before it's kicked off, et cetera. And what we end up showing is a deck that has the problem outline using a specific and real customer with their real information to highlight the issue, followed by supporting research on how you identified the problem, why it matters for the user, why it matters for the business per the strategy or the OKRs or whatever. Then a one-page summary of that solution that point by point makes it clear how it solves the specific problem you stated for that specific user. And then the last part is a really detailed start-to-finish walkthrough of the user workflow of the proposed solution. So each of these sections gets added on really as you move through the work. So you might start with a pitch on the problem and your research, and then you'd come back sometime later having added on the concept pitch for the solution after you've done your discovery work. And then you'd come back maybe once again when you're moving into build to show progress on what it's shaping up to actually look like in reality. The thing that's most important is that the problem is in terms of the user and that the solution walkthrough is the entire user experience from logging in, what it looks like on their screen, how they get to the problem area, what the new experience is like, and what happens after. Even if, again, 90% of that experience isn't changing, you have to force yourself to show the full thing. And the practice of putting together these outlines means that we're forced to stay accountable to the problem and the entire workflow that the user has to go through, sort of no matter where your team is. And that means that we end up being able to reduce the weird stuff that happens when you're shipping your org chart that's made up of small autonomous teams and the connections between your features start to get messy. 
you end up getting way better feedback from the people you're sharing it with because you give the reviewer a ton of context that they can use to ask better questions and make better suggestions because, again, they can see the full scope of your logic in a really sort of nicely compact way. And it also ends up creating a story for your product. By going through the exercise, you create a shared narrative about the problem and the user and the way you're solving it that other teams can kind of grab onto as you do more and more of these versions. And I did this for a big project that we're actually building right now, which if it goes well, maybe I'll do a show about. But the document that we're using has gone from a pitch on the problem to a pitch on the solution to a concept outline that we use to help constrain the individual team's work when we sort of handed it off to a bunch of teams to a living document that we're now using to power enablement for our sales and customer success teams. And the lesson here stood out to me because managers of product managers and above that is all about more than individual feature work. We're responsible for the whole product experience. So we need to think in terms of that whole product experience. And this ritual is just one way that we're folding that into our regular product practice that I found to be really useful and relatively easy to do. And it's paid off in so many more areas than I expected. Okay, so the second lesson, this is a perennial lesson, and that's that dates are the best forcing function, even if they're arbitrary. And yes, they are basically always arbitrary. The thing about building software as a cross-functional team is that it's really hard to establish when you're done. With basically every step in the process, There's always more research that PM can do on the problem space. There's always more the designer can do to prototype and diverge. There's more that the tech leads and developers can do to prototype technical solutions. And then, of course, there's always more features that users just have to have for, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to ship. Outside of getting the problem right in the first place, I think the next most important thing to do is to figure out the right amount of scope for solving that problem. And the best way to do this, in my opinion, is to commit to a date. That date's going to signal the appropriate amount of scope that the problem is worth, right? So if it's six months of work, that's a ton of scope, a really meaningful problem, versus if it's a week, it's a really small amount of scope, not a super meaningful problem. One thing to note is that you can't pick both a scope and a date to start. If you define a feature set and a date, you're going to set your teams up to fail. The teams have to use the problem and the date as a way to create a healthy constraint for themselves. And kind of on this point, John Cutler had some really great feedback. He said, there's a huge difference between a psychologically safe team of relative equals agreeing to a forcing function they find helpful and someone else forcing a forcing function, right? So you can't force this on a team. It has to be a tool that they use to help them build. So picking a date is going to help you establish the amount of scope you want. And second, picking a date is also going to give your team a way to keep themselves accountable, to make a plan, to track their work, and to learn from what they're doing. Without a clear and shared line in the sand like a date, it's really hard to know how you're doing. And that's not because, again, that I or you need something to use as like a hammer against your team, but it's because the whole name of the game and product is iterative development to get better at what we're doing, right? So if you can't evaluate how it went, it's damn hard to figure out what you're going to need to do to get better. Especially as you move up and you're working with lots of teams, having clear specific constraints like problems and dates that are written down and invisible becomes even more important for transparency and accountability and to fight the natural tendency of a team to spin things when they share with you where they're at. It's just something that's always going to creep into an organization and being explicit about the stuff really helps. Another reason why this made the list for me, in forcing a team to pick a date, you're also going to uncover all of those weird feelings and fears that the team has about that project. Are they reluctant to pick the date? Is the date they pick like way outside of what you thought the problem was worth? 
those are amazing signals to dig into that you might not otherwise pick up on, especially if you're remote and you're not getting the same or some of the same vibes that you might be used to getting when you're sitting in a room with a team. And to be even more specific, one of my favorite moments of last year was when after a ton of work on our problem, actually from the first lesson from making this pitch story, we did that understanding the right amount of time that problem was worth to us, the engineering director I work with picked a date. It was a huge date and really important date for us. And it was one of those moments where we all had to look at each other like, shit, this is real. We're going to do this. And that commitment felt good. And I'm obviously going to be nervous about it until we hit the date. But I think that's a good nervous because what it meant was that we were ready to call our shot. We were done spinning. There was no more. It depends. We did all of our research. We did our homework. We called it. And that's a feeling that I think everyone should have on the product team. All right. Third lesson. Your team is your peer group, not your direct reports or your buddies that are in your same function at your same level. This is a short one, but a good one that I learned this year from Craig. It's one of those things that can start to hold you back if you don't figure it out as you move up. It's definitely something that I wouldn't have figured out on my own. And I love it when I find out those subtleties of moving ahead, those unwritten rules, because then obviously I can share them. And what this means that as a PM, your team is not the individual developers you work with. It's your design partner, your tech lead, the product marketing manager you work with, et cetera. You don't want to fall into the trap of trying to be best friends with everyone on your development team. You absolutely need a good working relationship with them. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to make hard calls regardless of feelings. As a product leader, my team is really the engineering director I work with, the design director I work with, plus marketing directors, sales directors, customer success directors, and leaders that work in the same area. We're a team and we have to work together in order for the product to be successful because success is more than just building. It's making sure that the go-to-market works, that our users are successful with it, and that it's making us money. And that's a team that I have to invest time in to proactively find ways to work with, not necessarily the other product directors or my direct reports at all, although, of course, I love them. And then the cross-functional team at the level above you is who has to know your work and advocate for you if you're looking to get promoted. I think it would be easy to brush that off as politics, but another more valuable way to think about that is that if the team knows your work and values it, or if that team knows your work and values it, you've been doing things that are meaningful for the business, which is what you should have been doing anyway. And it's a good check against staying in the safe zone of just talking to you know other product design and engineering folks. You have to get out there and advocate for your work and make sure that it matters. All right, fourth lesson. This is the one that's probably the most top of mind because of the collective exhaustion from the pandemic and last year, but it's to look out for and fight the it's not my job disease. A good test for whether this is sneaking into your broader team is if when it's not clear who should do something, when that task is sort of like floated into a room or a Zoom, no one says anything. And the problem is that there's almost always a general sense of whose job it is and who would be good at doing whatever that thing is. And if that person doesn't step up and if that person's manager doesn't step up, you're starting to allow a little drop of annoyance or resentment to take place in the room because Eventually, the person who's going to volunteer is going to be the person who always volunteers or the person who everyone looks to because they're awesome and they get you done and everyone's going to look and say, well, can you do it? But that's how that person or those people start to burn out and how those awesome people that always volunteer start to resent the team and each other or how you create an environment where there are just endless problems and there's no energy to solve them because it's such a pain in the ass to figure out who should do the work and then to convince them to do it. And it can 
get even worse and start to look like there's no consequences for not doing your job, which increases resentment. And then kind of before you know it, you're in this weird and bad finger pointing and resentment spiral. But to avoid it, you have to hold each other accountable. You have to always have clear owners for different things that you're working on. Ideally, you set those owners when you're all feeling fresh and motivated. You have to foster good discussion and honestly good arguments amongst your peer group. And I think the really important lesson that I'm taking from this is that you have to be resilient because eventually it's going to be the thing that you are responsible for that get float that gets floated in one of those conversations. And so you have to be honest, right? And ask yourself, like, are you contributing to that disease? Are you making sure you stamp it out? And are you stepping up every time it happens? I think it's really easy, especially if it's something that you already know you should have done. If you didn't do it, it comes up in one of those meetings. It's so easy just to stay quiet because you don't want to admit to whatever it was that you were supposed to do. But I think the hallmark of a great team is when everyone steps up. Okay, last one, number five, that's never forget to sweat the details. So like I mentioned earlier, the whole game here is to ship the right thing at the right time. But the only way to do that is either to get lucky or to make sure that you're getting better at it every time you ship. And that's why everyone is always harping on shipping incrementally because you increase your chances of learning and getting it more right the next time if you ship small. So if we're going to focus on getting better, we have to practice. And our version of practice is just doing all of the things we know we should do, right? That's following our process, talking to the right number of customers, doing the right steps, looking at all the data we should, following all the advice we always ignore, like over communicating with people, always doing the freaking retro, the list goes on. Basically, sweat all of the little details of the process every time, document it, and learn from it, and you're going to set yourself up to win. For 2020, I had a lesson on how following up is as important as shipping in the first place, but as the year went on, I was learning that it's more than just following up. You can go wrong at so many points along the way. So instead, this year, I want to focus on being diligent and inexhaustible at hitting every step of the process including making sure there is a process before I start something. Not only does this mean that I'm going to get more reps and sets on each part of all of these things, but I'm also going to create an environment where I can learn from each step along the way. And of course, the more we can learn, the sooner we can learn, the sooner we can get better. But if you're not being explicit about what you're doing and the goal for each step of the work, it gets really hard to figure out what to learn. So an example of uh, where this showed up for me last year Probably in April, I started working on something that was already in progress by another team. Uh, we had done kind of a reorg. And instead of rechecking everything, I assumed a bunch of steps in our process had been completed. The short version of this is that I, I got this concept design and I, I was looking at as if it had been validated when it hadn't. And I thought the problem had been scoped and agreed upon when it hadn't. And I made so many stupid mistakes all at once because of that. I wasted probably two months in figuring out where I had gone wrong and then trying to dig myself out of the hole I had created by trying to move forward with something that didn't actually have a strong foundation. If I had just made sure, even just for my own knowledge, to catch up on the whole set of steps uh, that should have come before that and make sure I sort of understood what had happened at each step, I would have given myself a much higher chance of being successful. And this is absolutely not that someone didn't do the work they should have. It was my fault. I personally made some shortcutting assumptions and I was lazy about checking them, which is definitely an example of not splitting the details. And when I did finally ask the right set of questions, I got loud and clear answers that would have helped me save a lot of time before. Really, the lesson here is that it's it's easy when you're trying to move quickly, when you have a certain amount of experience, when you're familiar with the space you're working in, to make logic leaps. 
It's easy to say that process is for people with less experience or for new people on the team, but really it is also the best way that an experienced person can prevent themselves from falling for their own opinions. If I had followed the steps, made sure to check them off, I'd be in a way different place. So my last big lesson that I'm taking into 2021 is that we are never too good for those basics. We need to go through them every time, just like how an elite athlete never stops practicing technique and getting reps in. We don't want to stop sweating the details because we've been doing this for a long time. Maybe we're going to get faster at those steps. I hope I get faster at them, but we don't get to skip them. Plus, I think it's disingenuous to lead a team, but then consider yourself for some reason exempt from the same standards that you want them to have. So that's it. Those are my five lessons that I'm bringing into 2021. Products are workflows, commit to dates, your team is your peer group, when in doubt, it's your job, and never forget to sweat the details. I'd love to hear what your lessons are or what intentions you're setting for this year. Please send them my way. I would love to hear from you. Send me a note at maggieadrift.com. Thanks, team. Thanks, team.